Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming at KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, California, and Pacifica Radio Affiliate Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts. This is Nick Richard. Today, we talk about why there shouldn't be any difference in funding for recreational and transportation bike trips. Also, a bike salon in Los Angeles, put together by the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition. But first, an interview with Dr. Allie Thomas at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Allie did a study on electric and cargo bikes as tools for parents. Allie just wrote a testimonial in support of Connecticut's SB4, which is a climate action bill that includes vouchers for e-bikes. Elena Thomas? Yeah, everyone just calls me Allie. You're at Chapel Hill. Yeah, assistant professor. I'm looking at a letter. Dear members of the Transportation Committee, there was an automobile ro- an automobile rebate and you were maybe suggesting e-bike rebates? Yeah, I had been asked to write a letter of support because there was some advocates who were trying to get the electric vehicle rebate to extend to electric bicycles. And I had done research. It got published just recently, but I did the research quite a while ago, 2000. 2016. And at that time in California, there was kind of a boom in certain areas, San Francisco Bay Area, even down to like Silicon Valley of people using electric bikes and electric cargo bikes to take their kids to school. And there was no electric bike rebates then, but there was a grassroots momentum, actually, of organizations and so forth, bike advocates, things like that, who were saying that they should be included with the electric vehicle rebate. When reached out to me to write a letter of support, I was like, yes, because this makes sense. It is a vehicle. It can be used just like any other vehicle. It's electric. Why not give that rebate? And it is quite cost prohibitive, even though the parents that I talked to have good, decent paying jobs, they still had to kind of take a pause to justify the cost. The cost can be anywhere between, at that yeah. time, it was like $1,500 to like $10,000. Or an e-bike? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because some of the bikes, they look like traditional bikes and others are cargo bikes, which are bigger. And you have front-loading and back-loading bikes. And so you can carry kids in a bucket or you can carry them on the back of your bike. And so if it's a longer bike, it's usually more expensive. The $10,000 and above bikes are usually more of a bucket style, but it really depends on type of motor, various other accessories, things like that. I've never heard of an e-bike more than $10,000. Does that exist? Yeah. It depends on like what you put on it and where you're getting it. And now the prices may have come down, but at that time, the market was much smaller. Now the market's gotten much bigger. There's more bike stores and shops and so forth. But yes, depending on the kind of bike and the model, there's European cargo bikes that can be quite expensive. So can you tell me about this letter? This was in March. Yes. So the letter basically points out that we should look at electric bikes as electric vehicles because they can be used to substitute just like electric cars can be substituted for gas powered cars. You can use bikes in the same way. One of the other points I made was from my research and what I've noticed as well is that a lot of women feel safer on electric bikes. And this could also be a way to get more gender balance in terms of biking, particularly because women are still responsible for child rearing and often are the ones that where they work is usually closer to childcare, things like that. So often when we think about bikes, we think about single people, but with electric bikes, you can actually carry children on them. And so what I was trying to suggest was that this is also a way to reach out to communities that may not have access to cars, 
but this would be a more sustainable way and also would get some exercise. Because these are not necessarily like electric scooters, they're basically electric assists. And so it gives you a little bit of help to get moving on the bike. And then the other thing was, is that when I was doing the study, going back to the women, a lot of them felt that because they had choices in terms of streets, the city was open to them. They were no longer worried about if it was too hilly or if the traffic was too fast, they could take an alternative route. And they didn't have to worry about if they had enough energy to carry their kid or kids in some cases on the bike. And then also if it's a bigger bike, like a cargo bike, they're more visible. So concerns around safety were minimized because they were seen on the streets. And then also because you're not exerting as much on the bike, if you use more assist, you're not sweaty. So you could actually bike to work without having to worry about ending up at the office looking pretty bad. And that actually is something that stops people from using bikes because in America, we don't often have a shower on the other side of our trip. So using a traditional bike, getting to the office and being sweaty, there's no shower there. So people are like, why would I do that? And they don't bike. Mm-hmm. So yeah. There's a lot to consider. Oh, yes. There's a lot to consider. As somebody who biked quite a bit when I lived overseas, I lived in China for six years and I had a bike. One time I had a trip that was like 45 minutes in each direction by bike and I could do it because there were bike lanes. There's a lot of other people on the street with me that were biking as well. And this is in the early stages of lots of cars, but there was still infrastructure in place. And what I found with my study was that people were using the infrastructure that was there in the Bay Area, and they've been putting a lot of investments into more bike lanes and paths and things like that, and protected lanes as well. And so the infrastructure is there, people feel safer and feel that they can take advantage of it. The other thing that worked and came up and was not even a part of my thinking in doing the study was that, again, because it's the Bay Area, you had alternatives to just driving or biking. You also had public transit. But you also had parking policies, particularly in San Francisco. The San Francisco parents who had e-bikes talked about it also in terms of parking. They only had to worry about one car now because usually the families still had one car. One family had no cars, just e-bikes. But without having two cars, they only had one car they had to worry about in terms of parking. And they also found that they would use the e-bike more because they're like, okay, we've got the good parking space in front of our house. And this is because in some places in San Francisco, it's by permit. So you don't have a designated parking space. Then they would just use the e-bike for the other trips. And then also what they got out of it, I think this is what I also said in the letter, is that they no longer had to do that whole crazy pick up and drop off line to school because now they could just drive up to the school and drop off their kid with their e-bike. So there's a lot of stressful things that were kind of put to the side by having an e-bike. And they got a lot out of it, a lot of benefits, not just being outside, but also just having a lot more freedom that they got because they weren't driving a car. They got to do more things without the car because the e-bike offered them a lot more freedom. They weren't having to worry about parking spaces. They weren't having to worry about drop-off pickup lines. They could pick up their kids if they wanted to take the long way home stop by a park, or as one parent talked about, visit their kid's favorite tree, they could do an impromptu trip that way. So they had a lot more freedom, which is what oftentimes you think about, or how cars are actually advertised. You have this independence and freedom. But again, the infrastructure was there in place, not just the physical infrastructure with having bikes, but the infrastructure in terms of policies that made it so that you wanted to look for an alternative to cars. Parking is expensive. It's market rate in San Francisco, longer hours, things like that. So driving is not as much fun. There's not as much freedom. And so you want to look for alternatives in that way. So you did this study 
Mm-hmm. Was this a major study, would you say? Did it take a long time? Was this a treatise? No, it didn't take a long It was like something I did my postdoc. I did a lot of work. I just graduated with my PhD and I did a postdoc for one year at UC Davis through the National Center for Sustainable Transportation. And so I wanted to do something more U.S. focused in terms of my research. Most of my research was based in China and looked at urban mm-hmm. planning issues in China. And so I started seeing on social media, all these people on these cargo bikes, these e-bikes and so forth. And there was a New York Times article about it. And then at this time too, a lot of the research that was done nationally didn't really talk about carrying children on bikes. It was, do you carry heavy loads or children? Which really still annoys me because my friends that do research on e-bikes and they don't separate them. And I'm like, they're very different kinds of trips. So I wanted to talk to parents and get more of a qualitative study to see like, okay, how are you doing this? How are you incorporating this bike into your life? How has it given you the flexibility that you only have one car and what are the pros and cons of it? And so then I went about having to find the parents because again, this is 2015 not a lot of parents or caretakers. I also talked to people, uncles that have like a niece that they, he carried on his bike quite a bit. So I had to go through a couple of different listservs. I went on like the Berkeley Parents Network and it took some time. Again, I'm dealing with parents. And now that I'm a parent myself, it's like, you only have a certain amount of time and then you have children and you have brain space, right? So it was conversations where parents giving a kid a bath. That's how we did it. So it was a very small study. It was only 20 people, but it's the only study that we've done so far in the United States where we've done this qualitative work. They've done qualitative studies of e-bike users in Europe. And often it's about elderly people with injuries, things like that, but not necessarily focused on specifically, do you use your bike as you would a minivan is what I said. So yeah, that's where it came from. But it took time only because at that moment, the market was pretty small. It's now blown up more and I have more information about it. And the interviews, some of them ranged from like an hour, others were like 30 minutes and just asking questions like, why did you buy the bike? How do you use it? What kinds of things have come up and getting an idea of like what it's like for them. Mm-hmm. So you had done this study and e-bikes were now part of your thinking. Mm-hmm. And this act was about to be passed, SB4? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a friend of a friend reached out and asked if I would support efforts to get e-bikes covered with the rebate. So California has just recently done this themselves where they've included electric bicycles. But when they first started doing electric vehicles, it took a while for them to do it. So when I heard that Connecticut was going to do a rebate and considering electric bikes, I was more than willing to support that because I think that, again, we need to move away from vehicles only being cars and that people use all kinds of modes of transportation to get to work. And if this is one way to make it more affordable for people and also a cleaner alternative and also a way to get some exercise. I mean, that was the thing too, is that You do get a little assist. You can decide how much assistance you need with your electric bike. But what I heard from the parents was, again, you're busy. This may be the only exercise you get. And because of the convenience of it, you're more likely to do it more often. And this is what has also been echoed in larger quantitative studies where people who started using the e-bike and seeing that, oh, I can get around more often. And they started to get more exercise, just getting outside, moving and so forth. So yeah, I'm all for anything that kind of makes it easier for people to get access to these bikes. Who was your friend? Was it one of the people we interviewed? Kate. Kate Rosen? Yeah. 
Yeah, we interviewed her on her tweet about there were these negative responses about e-bikes from able-bodied male sports cyclists. Yeah, and that's been an issue too. Some people, even parents that I talked to, a couple of them, and one guy, he used to be a bike delivery guy. His feeling was just, who are they to judge anybody? The point is you're on a bike. And I think that that's it too. And I think that that's right. It's able-bodied. Again, the earlier studies were about people who had injuries or who were older. It's like, hey, people are out on bike. It's good for your mental health to move, to be outside. And so why wouldn't we encourage this? And I think people have these ideas that these things are going crazy 50 miles per hour. And it's like, no, by and large, you'd have some help, but they are restricted. We're a little bit better with our regulations in terms of speeds. And I think it's more about people just following general traffic safety laws. But yeah, I think that if these things can help people prolong their ability to bike, we need to stop thinking of them as this like separate thing. Speed in the bike lanes is an issue in general anyway in, in certain places, just because you've got people who speed. None of us is perfect. So when we start trying doing this thing like, they're not following the rules. A lot of us don't follow the rules when we drive or when we're bike or when we walk. Let's get beyond there. But what are the impacts of not being safe? Who's going to be hurt worse? So yeah, there are things we need to think about. This process where they take mm-hmm. letters from people. What is that? Is that part of the process, passing a bill generally? It's basically gathering testimony in support of it and just giving evidence from like the American Cancer Society. And there's other people that supported it as well. So it's just to kind of support the bill, including electric bikes. How's it doing? I do not know. With bills, you never know because there's all those rules and so forth and arguments and all that kind of stuff and debates and so forth. Yeah. But this is something a lot of people have been working on a lot of places. And the e-bike credit in California did pass. Yeah, it did. And I think it's been helpful in terms of various bike shops and things like that. Yeah, it did pass just a few years ago. And I think there was supposed to be more targeted help as well for certain communities and things like that. And there's money, but it wasn't the way that they thought it was going to be. But in general, you can get money back for buying an e-bike. Yes. Mm. I should be more up on that since this is a Los Angeles-based show. And, oh, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, I only know because I was still on one of the e-bike stores, Lister, because they've been working really hard. There's a whole coalition of people that were trying to get this done earlier on, and I think it finally passed. I moved to Massachusetts in the summer, and I wasn't able to get a credit when I was still in LA, so mm-hmm. I don't know what was going on. So since you have lived in California... Mm-hmm. You were at Davis. Mm-hmm. Have you thoughts about the governor of California giving $400 for every able-bodied car? Yeah, I saw that. I'm a bit mixed about that myself, I could be honest. I honestly think there's ways that that could be done that it's not aimed at if you have a car or not. I think in general, our federal government really just dropped it when they didn't continue the income support that they were doing last year, where people were getting a little bit of money every month, depending on how many children they had. Because I think if that had continued, this gas price situation would not be as big of a deal, particularly for those people who need that money. The reason why I hesitated is just because I remember the gas crisis from way, way back in the 70s. And 
the lines and so forth. And California's done a lot to be more efficient and so forth in terms of having the highest standards for emissions and fuel efficiency and so forth in terms of its vehicle market higher than the federal government. But this is just one of those things where, what is the signal that we have here? I don't think everybody should get the $400. I think certain families definitely do because there's a lot of people that can't work from home. And there's a lot of people that can't take public transit. And I mean, that in the sense of, yes, maybe they live near transit and maybe they could get to work, but they can't get their kid to childcare or they can't get their kid to school and back in time, make it to work on time. So you are car dependent. And I come from Southern California in particular, and I live in the Bay Area later in life. And so, yeah, you go inland in California, your public transit options are less and less. So yes, it's mixed for me because I think when you start dealing with things like that, where it's not a sunk cost, like your rent, you know, you know, every month you got to pay that. And this is your discretionary income in terms of filling the gas tank or feeding your kids. Then I'm for the $400 because that is an actual situation that occurs when your gas prices are up to like six, $7 a gallon. Yeah. You're like, okay, which one am I going to do? Because I know I'm going to have to pay rent, but what are the ways that I can move my money around? So then it becomes like, what do I eat? And so forth. So yeah, definitely there's people who are trapped Yeah. by our car dependency, mm-hmm. but oh, I guess people with bikes don't need it. Yeah. So I would do it based on like your income. If you get the $400 versus just if you have a car, there's other ways too. Like what about the people who are taking public transit? Why are they not getting money? Cause they're not on the road. It's interesting to me that like a lot of times motorists get very upset where there's some kind of proposal to raise taxes or something to support public transit. And what happened in the Bay Area when there was a BART strike was that all these people who usually took public transit started driving and traffic was terrible, awful. And I think if people think about it in terms of if you support more public transit, maybe your commute will actually be better because more people will be using public transit. And I know this sounds really strange as a way to argue it, but it's kind of similar to why are we giving people money that are driving just based on the fact they have a car? And not supporting more and more people using public transit. Like, why can't that be in a way of extra money if you took more public transit or particularly for people who have more of a discretion? Not everybody is driving to work these days. There's a lot of people who are working from home. So what I was trying to say is that often we seem to separate, I'm a transit person and you're a motorist, but in reality, we're in the same system. And so if motorists supported transit, a lot of times they would be better off as well. It's not a thing of like either or, but often we're funding the motorists more than we're funding other modes. And I think if you got $400 to give to everybody, then there should be also more money put into different kinds of infrastructure to support other modes as well. Bike lanes would be great. Actual pathways, better sidewalks, also accessibility issues as well in terms of improving those things. Yeah, maybe make people not quite so dependent on their cars. Well, I think too, not every trip has to be you by yourself. I think the thing that's really interesting to me is that I was looking a few years ago at different types of transportation statistics. And I looked at North Carolina and at some point they had a pretty high carpool rate, like 10%. Okay. And North Carolina populations are pretty spread out. So trying to have a robust public transit system is probably not going to happen. But I also think that we need to stop thinking in terms of it's only public transit, it's biking or walking. We're not thinking about carpooling. We're not thinking, okay, you're my neighbor. I know you. Hey, I'm going to the store. Why don't we go to the store together? That's one car off for that one trip, right? We're not thinking in these other ways. I remember that from childhood. That was one of the things that happened with the gas crisis. Okay, 
It doesn't have to be a single occupancy vehicle. If you guys are all going to the mall, then let's all go together. Then that's one car and two or three cars not driving there. And so that's some of the ways we can think about it. I think it's been very clear in terms of Uber and Lyft. Now they're losing drivers because the price is too high. Well, that's because the drivers have been bearing the majority of the transportation costs with the gas prices. So again, it's a thing of thinking outside the box about how do we get a certain number of cars off the road? It doesn't have to mean no one drives. It just means not everyone on your trips has to be just you in the car. Because that's the biggest problem is that it's me driving to that place by myself versus, okay, maybe work trips, I can take a person from distance or whatever. It's again, thinking outside the box and making people feel safe about it. But it's definitely one of these things where it just reinforces a certain idea of you have the right to have a car and we're not going to do anything else about it and try and solve these complex problems. We'll just throw some money at it. This year, California has a surplus of money. What would have happened if the budget wasn't that good and you don't have the $400, what's going to happen? We have to think of solutions that are not about just money in that way. And the reason why gas prices are so high in California is because it's one of the ways they deal with air quality issues. So their fuel is the cleanest in the United States. And that's to make sure when it's emitted, there's not as many pollutants. So people need to understand part of the problem is that they couldn't control people and their cars another way. So they had to have cleaner fuels And technology was one of the ways they addressed a lot of the pollution issues in California. But we haven't really been able to shift behavior to get people out of their cars as much. And I think in terms of particularly discretionary types of trips, finding alternatives. Do you have to drive on the weekend too? Is there ways in which, again, you can carpool, share, maybe take a bus, something like this? You know, right now we're at a point where gas prices are rising because of that invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the reason, right? That's what they say. I've heard different things, but we don't get that much oil from Russia. So Mm -hmm. that a lot of the oil companies are using that as an excuse. I think part of it too, is that whatever anyone thinks about climate change, what people have not heard is that even the Department of Defense considers oil scarcity and the dependence on fossil fuels to be a national security issue. And have looked at climate change in that way, in terms of also understanding the impacts of things like access to these things as being a national security issue. And so I think what I'm not hearing from people understanding is we have to shift to do different types of alternatives that are not making us dependent because we will then continue to be in these like international crises. And one of the more conservative parts of our government has pointed out that we need to move away from this fossil fuel dependence. Because it's a national security issue. If we don't deal with certain issues like this and continuing to be dependent on gas is not great. It really makes us vulnerable. Well, the Netherlands had their turnaround when there was a gas crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, crisis and opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've done it before in America. I think that's the thing that makes me a bit sad and not be nostalgic. But there were times when we had to bring it together as a country and go, okay, what can we do to deal with this? All right, well, we'll start doing carpooling or we'll have victory gardens or we'll do these things as a united country against a certain enemy or something like this. And I think that's part of it is it's strange to me that while we have a lot of isolationists, we continue to have relationships in which we cannot be isolationists, right? And I'm not saying I want to be an isolationist, but it's contradictory to, on one hand, push for more and more fossil fuel dependency and at the same time, not want to get involved with international politics. Well, you can if you're going to continue doing these things. 
Yes, we have our own oil reserves and so forth, but that only is going to last so much. And it's not that easy to just get that oil as well. Yeah, our hand is being forced. Yeah, and I think it can't just be this constant, okay, well, every time the gas price goes up, we're going to just subsidize motorists. That can't be the answer. But it's also a problem, and California is one of the states that drives me nuts, is that part of it is we don't have the density in certain cities, and certain cities won't do an increased density. And you've got people who seem to think that density is a bad word. And you've got situations near UCLA, for example, neighborhoods don't want you to have apartment complexes because that somehow bring down their property values. It won't. There's just all sorts of thinking around this that creates a situation in which people have to have cars because there's not enough density to have public transit. And so it's, it's partially that kind of thinking in which all these cities have so much power and they don't think about how they impact other cities in California in particular. And they tried various bills to get more density and so forth. They've done better than they've had in the past, but it's very hard. Yeah. And so we are continuing to study the problem. Right. So thanks for coming on, Elena. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Bike Talk, and we're going to hear from Warren Wells now. Warren is the Policy and Planning Director of the Marin County Bicycle Coalition. Warren tweeted about the frustrating tendency to distinguish between transportation and recreation bike trips. Warren Wells, Marin County Bicycle Coalition, you had a viral tweet that I'd like to go over. Yeah, so as many of my best tweets are, this happened during a Zoom meeting that I was sitting on, and I was feeling some frustration about the topic, and then kind of popped off a couple ideas into the Twitterverse. Should I read the tweet? I guess people want to yeah, listen yeah. to it. Yeah, so I was just saying, continually frustrated by the desire to distinguish between transportation and recreational bike trips. Every car trip is considered important, even if you're driving to the trailhead, but bike trips apparently only matter if people are driving to work. This came up in a conversation about an active transportation plan that's being developed by the regional governing body, the MPO, Metropolitan Planning Organization in the Bay Area, and trying to develop kind of a full active transportation plan for millions of people across hundreds of square miles. It's a daunting task. And they're trying to decide what to prioritize and what goes into that plan. And so there's been a lot of discussion about we want to make sure what goes into the plan is facilities that will encourage transportation trips because we're trying to reduce vehicle miles traveled, VMT, and get cars off the road, and less emphasis on purely recreational facilities. And what I was just trying to do with that tweet, and I actually gave a comment in this meeting, was to really kind of try to muddy that distinction. So obviously, there are utilitarian trips versus recreational trips. This is something that does map to the real world. Obviously, if I go out for a bike ride up the hill and come back down to my house, that's a recreational trip. But the idea first, that we can read the minds of the users and tell what types of trips people will be doing on which facilities in the first place, for one, that seems like a fraught issue. To give an example from Marin, where I work, Marin is a topographically rich county, a lot of hills there. It can be tough to bike around and you kind of have to follow the valleys. There's actually a trail, the Mission Peak Path. It goes in the saddle between two valleys and you actually can't drive between it. It's a street cul-de-sac on one side and on the other, but you can bike through it. And first blush, you would look at this and be like, well, this is a recreational trail. There serves no transportation purpose. It's managed by Marin County Parks. But actually, because of where it sits in the saddle of these two valleys, it serves actually a crucial transportation purpose. If you were to try to bike between those two valleys without using the Mission Peak Pass, it would take half an hour and five miles. And this dirt trail cuts it down to 10 minutes. And so people use it all the time. People are on their cargo bikes. 
And we're actually trying to change the bollard setup because they're really annoying to use with a cargo bike. It's fine for hiking, but not good for bikes, especially heavy bikes. So that's the first point, that what facilities people use for transportation purposes versus purely recreational purposes, there's not such a bright line, and it's hard to read people's minds. On the second front, about the idea that only utilitarian trips replace a car trip, that's also, I would say, wrong on the facts. So again, like, it's a nice day, I'm going to finish work today, I'm probably going to get on my bike, ride up the hill, come down, do a little 15-mile loop. That's a recreational trip. But if I lived in the suburbs, that trip might look like me getting in a car, driving to the gym, getting on the elliptical if I did that. And every time there's a park near our house, whereas when I was a kid, there wasn't. We had to drive to the park. We put our bikes in the back of the car and drove five miles to get on the bike path. So a recreational trip, if you build the recreational facilities for people, people take recreational trips on bikes that they would have had to drive otherwise. So this idea that recreational trips don't replace car trips, I think fails on that front too. So I'll pause there. Is this something that was going on in your meeting when you tweeted this? Yes. In this meeting, the planner who is developing this MTC, Metropolitan Transportation Commission, active transportation plan was talking about the desire to only include facilities that were utilitarian or transportation in nature and pushing back against a move by some advocates, myself included, to include facilities that he'd deemed as recreational. And so my point in that meeting, and then again, just sort of popping up on Twitter, was just trying to say that actually that distinction, it doesn't really matter. And it's really hard to discern. Going back to the tweet, this is not a distinction that we really ever try to make with driving. Every car trip is considered important and it capital M matters because it's really hard to survey drivers and ask where they're going. We assume that everyone driving at 8.30 in the morning is on a very important work commute to try and make their important call at nine o'clock. Well, we also know only one-sixth of all trips are commutes. We notice them because they happen to occur at the same time in the same direction. A lot of people at the commute hour are driving somewhere other than work. They might be driving to drop their kids off to school. They might be going to drop their dry cleaning off. They may be going to a doctor's appointment. They may be going for a hike. You know, people do that in the morning. And so this assumption that all car trips are useful and only some bike trips are useful, I would say, irks me. And then this comes up in transportation decision-making. So a quick primer on Bay Area geography. I live in the East Bay. I live in Berkeley. East Bay is known for Berkeley, Oakland, a number of other cities, Richmond. I live across the Bay from Marin County, which is connected to the East Bay by a bridge called Richmond Santa Fe and connected to San Francisco by the Golden Gate Bridge. In 2019, there was a four-year pilot program launched to put a protected bike lane. It's like a bike walk path on the Richmond San Rafael Bridge, which previously was not possible to bike across. Without that path, I couldn't have taken the job that I do. I don't own a car. I live in the East Bay. I didn't want to buy a car. So I bike across the bridge once or twice a week. We're a full remote org. So I'm just there for field work and meetings. I'm not usually there at the crack of dawn. I'm usually there for like a one o'clock or a two o'clock meeting. There's a counter on the bridge and you can look online to see how many people ride the bridge. It's a four and a half mile bridge. The bike traffic of the bridge is admittedly not that high. It's like 150 people during the day on a weekday and 400, 500 people on a weekend. I'm usually riding across the bridge at two o'clock on one trip and usually like six o'clock on the other trip. And that two o'clock trip is not a peak hour commute time. So that's an off peak time. So it's probably recreational. It's like, well, not in my case. And again, I don't want to say an N of one is all that important, but we should just look at where people are going and not trying to do so much divination into people's purposes. We should facilitate travel and mobility and people will go about what they need to do for health, for work, et cetera. And that said, 
I do think it's important to prioritize the facilities that the most people will use. If you're talking about two trails, one will be used by 10,000 people a day, one that used by 100 people a day. The choice there is obvious. But again, just going back to the original point and post, trying to distinguish such a bright line between transportation and utilitarian trips, I think is kind of a fool's errand. Sounds like you're coming up against this in your work. Yeah, I think that people in the active transportation world largely get that. I made my point and a few other people chimed in to say the same, people who are in other bicycle advocacy organizations who are part of this meeting that I was in. But people in the capital P planning world or traffic engineers or regional modelers, when you take a class on travel behavior analysis, this is not the kind of fine-grained qualitative stuff you get into. We do a model to try to figure out what the trip generation of every individual land use will be and model it across the whole metropolitan area to figure out how many people will be on this road at peak hour of this day. And this determines signal timing and the number of lanes. And again, by that model, because we only model car trips, essentially, in the US, by that model, a person getting in the car and driving to the gym for a spin class, that counts for regional travel demand, it counts for like level of service intersections, it counts for lane width, it is counted. And every person making a walking trip or bike trip is just kind of a shrug. It's like, well, we don't know where those people are, so we won't count them. And this is like another point that I've hammered on before. It's called McNamara's fallacy. It comes from the Vietnam War where we were counting enemies killed as like a metric of success, not because that is the actual metric, because that was the easy thing to do. We set our goals based on what we can count and kind of shrug our shoulders on the stuff we can't count. And so like the things that are easy to count are cars going past the point via pneumatic tubes or where we can look at commute mode share via the census. And things that are really hard to count are where people are walking, where people are biking, and the purpose of people's trips. So we kind of assume that all car trips are important and most bike trips are recreational and that they aren't actually replacing car trips. I know you are at the Marin County Bicycle Coalition. What's your title again? Policy and Planning Director. So I'm basically an advocacy director for road and transportation cycling. Marin, for anybody who doesn't know, is considered the home of mountain biking and is actually one of the great places for recreational riding. So I have a coworker who does advocacy for trail access and mountain biking and trail riding. My half of the organization is all streets and paths, so on-road riding, which I end up advocating for safety of recreational cyclists. But most of the work I'm trying to do is trying to improve all ages and abilities riding in Marin. Marin is a place where a ton of people ride for recreation and a disappointingly small number of people ride for everyday transportation because it was built out during the automotive era of the 1950s. So it's something that we're working on changing. And so maybe the recreational side not being taken seriously even if it is known that is recreational, I guess partly what we're talking about is a rationale for creating bike infrastructure, even if we kind of think it might be mainly recreational. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great point. Again, I don't want to dismiss recreational cyclists. I am one. I ride most weekends and during the week too. And often even that, when we see places with a ton of recreational cyclists, that's looked at as just unimportant and ignored. I was just looking at the intersection. There's like a project I'm going to call after this about this project in West Marin. West Marin is a largely rural, two-lane roads, high speeds, a ton of recreational riding. I was looking at this one particular intersection, which just looks like there's no bike accommodations at all. Two-way stops on the side and then 45 mile per hour speed limit, not a drop of green paint or bollards or side paths or anything. And as part of this project, I was looking at the traffic count to see when they did the evaluation, they have someone sit up there for a couple hours and see how many people are going through the intersection in both directions. And 40% of the vehicles going through this intersection are bikes. That was on a Thursday. <laughs> a lot of people are out here biking. And, and I suspect given the land use, those are mostly recreational trips. 
those people deserve to be safe. Taxpayers. Yeah, exactly. They're residents of the county. And yet the intersection is designed entirely for cars, totally ignoring any pedestrians or bicyclists because cars count and bikes don't. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were interested enough to retweet and like your tweet and it went viral. Was that surprising? Um, I mean, I don't know. It was my best tweet. It was pretty good. I try to shy away from too much snark and try to educate people about what's going on. My background before working in advocacy was working in private planning. I worked for a consulting firm doing complete suites projects, transportation master plans, transit center design. And during that time, I learned a ton. And you see how the metrics we care about affect the plans that people experience. And so I try in my online presence on Twitter, such as it is, to educate people who might be coming at this work from just the interest side, from just riding recreationally or riding to get around, to get to school to get to drop with their kids and try to explain what I consider to be the broken thinking from our public policy side and how these bad outcomes result from bad decisions in the front end. Well, we're going to hopefully talk more about a range of these issues with you. Yeah, I'd love to. All right. Thanks, Warren. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Bike Talk. Next, we have our co-host Taylor Nichols with advocates from the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition and Santa Monica Spoke. They're promoting the first in a series of three bike salons. This is a local Los Angeles event that already happened, but we're playing the interview because they support the Healthy Streets LA initiative to implement the city's mobility plan. And if we can make it there, we can make it anywhere. Good afternoon and welcome to Bike Talk. You guys, I'm Taylor Nichols and I'm here with the murderer's row of advocates for the Los Angeles region. Eli Kaufman is back on the show today from the LA CBC. And we have Cynthia Rose, who is the founder of the Santa Monica Spoke, which is part of LA CBC, but she's also a advocate entrepreneur. She's found ways to advocate for safe streets in LA while creating jobs for other advocates in the business, which is really wonderful. And we also have today Michael Fishman, who, if you know anything about bikes, you probably know about Pure Cycles. They're lifestyle bikes that were just great to ride. Pure Fix is one of my favorites. Michael has moved on from that and started another gig that he'll talk about today, but he's a real entrepreneur and advocate for safe streets in LA. And we also have Genevieve Serda, who is the Senior Development Manager for LACBC, which is code for raising money. So Genevieve, thanks very much for being here. Eli, I want to start with you. I wonder if you could just give us a quick update on what we're here to talk about today, which is Bike Salon, which is bringing together all of the advocates around the LA region into one public place now that COVID is kind of waning and get everybody rallied behind the Healthy Streets Initiative that we're trying to get on the ballot. So Eli, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. And it's uh, great to be back on the show. The Bike Salon is an idea that we've been developing for a long time, actually before the pandemic, and we weren't able to launch it. But when the Healthy Streets LA initiative was announced and Michael Schneider from Streets for All started talking to us about it, we realized that we needed to be a part of it and we needed to try to lend as much support as we could. We actually just sent out an email because they're hiring people to gather signatures. We just sent out an email blast about it today. But the Bike Salon and the reason why we're here today is going to be hosted by Michael Fishman and Cynthia Rose, who will talk about themselves in a minute, is really designed to bring bike-minded people together to get to know the LACBC a little bit better, to get inspired by some of our programs and see how they can participate, and then to take out their pens and sign their name to this signature gathering campaign that we're doing to get the Healthy Streets LA initiative onto the ballot. 
So signing the petition is not necessarily supporting it. It's just getting this on the ballot. That's the main thing. So this can be on the ballot. Correct. This is not a vote. This is literally qualifying the initiative to be on the ballot. Right. But I don't know why you would sign something that you weren't going to vote for, but you're not committing yourself either way. And so that's why we feel like if you really want to see healthier, safer, more equitable streets, then this could be a major way for us to actually get that done. And, and do you want me to talk a little bit about the program or do you want to talk about well, it? I'm going to bring in Cynthia because the yeah. Healthy Streets Initiative is really just an initiative that would make the city of L.A., when they repave their streets, take into account the 2035 mobility plan as they repave their streets. And that's one thing that Santa Monica has done so well. And Cynthia, you work out of Santa Monica. I wonder if you could talk about why it's so important that as streets are repaved, we date them for the 21st century. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. And thanks for that wonderful introduction. And and I'll backtrack a bit and talk a little bit about Santa Monica Spoke. And I'm the co-founder, actually, not the founder. It takes a village to do all this stuff. And that was back in 2009. I've been thinking about this over the last few days. And if I were thinking of why we started Santa Monica Spoke, it was A, because we wanted to support LACBC with a grassroots vision from the individual communities and have that umbrella. And you talked about that in the beginning on how LACBC is really the mothership of bike advocacy and walking advocacy in Los Angeles. And with all of these different 88 municipalities, LA is so unique in that sense that we have all of these cities within, it has been impossible for one organization to do that. And with the chapters, which is why we founded LACBC, where other communities could connect to the mothership and help with that mutual support, then we could have a better Los Angeles. So if I could put it in a nutshell, what I started to say in that long-winded sentence was we're better together. So if we can get this and we're better together, then we can move forward. We can move mountains. So in Santa Monica, as you said, Taylor, since our inception, when we had a network of disconnected bike lanes, Even before we passed our award-winning bike plan, I like to say, in 2011, the city and the mobility department has connected with the other departments so that every time there's a street repaving, we look at the bike plan, we look at the future, what we're looking at in the city, and we figure out a way to implement that at that point. So the excuse of having disconnected bike lanes just doesn't work because if you commit yourself to it, the long term, which you can see in Santa Monica, hopefully if you come and visit, is we have, I can't even remember the number of miles of bike lanes that we have, but many of those got put in before they were scheduled to be implemented in the bike plan, simply because every time we paved, we looked at the bike plan to make sure. And I understand that we paid maybe a little bit more often than Los Angeles, but it still doesn't change the fact that it's a solution to an issue where if a street does get paved without looking at the bike plan, it could be decades before it is addressed again. And that is unacceptable. And it's cheaper, right? It's cheaper to do it that way. Of course, much cheaper. Bike implementation projects are already cheaper than road projects, but when you just roll them into a road project, it's almost just the cost of extra paint maybe, and that's it. Or there's almost no cost at all because the plan is already designed and all we have to do is restripe the road in many cases to allow for safe mobility for everyone, not just people who are driving cars, but people who are riding bikes and walking. And walking, great. Bringing up the concept of cheaper brings up the idea of money and advocates never seem to have very much money. And that's where someone like Michael Fishman comes in, 
who is such an amazing businessman. And I think the advocacy world needs to connect more with the business world. And so, Michael, I wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself a little bit again, but to also tell us how you went from Pure Cycles to Maverick and what you hope to get out of Maverick and why you're using Maverick as the staging place for the very first bike salon, which is, by the way, next Thursday, March 31st from 7 to 8.30 p.m. And I'll let you talk more about where it is and all that. But Michael, we're really glad to have you on the show today. But really what we're glad to have you is in our world. So thanks very much. Well, thank you, Taylor. Thanks for having me here. So I want to first dispel the notion, though, that the individual supporters that Grassroots Army cannot put in money. Just recently with Sunset for All, something that was incubated inside of LACBC, has raised tens of thousands of dollars from individual contributors. And Eli, would you chime in with what those amounts were? Yeah, sure. So Sunset for All was a grassroots crowdfunding campaign, and we raised over $65,000 in a little less than six weeks. And the biggest news about that was that the majority of the donations were under $50. So these were small dollar donors, a couple large ones, of course, but the vast majority were small dollar donors who just gave what they could, but they were really voting with their pocketbook to help us raise enough money to do the initial engineering for the project and also do some public engagement around getting people activated to make this infrastructure happen. So that's Sunset for All by the numbers. So thanks for that, Michael. It takes a village. Yeah, it does. And it's possible. So the notion that like the advocates are the ones who just gather at the meetings and talk real loud, and then we need someone else to put in the money, I think is a notion that needs to be changed immediately. But with that said, we do need the brands in LA to step up in a much bigger way. And thankfully, someone like Giant is helping LACBC more. We'd love to get someone from their brand on our board, if anyone's listening. And we'd like more support because we could do a lot bigger things if we had more brand support from even bike shops and other successful brands and wealthy individuals who love bikes. So that's the plug for that. But now to tie it back to Maverick, to me, an individual creator like this grassroots army we talked about is the future. And what I'm doing at my new business is providing a platform for independent fitness coaches and instructors to run their own businesses. So we provide them space and infrastructure, production equipment, so they can film really high quality content, help build their organization. And then they're running their business out of our space with really low barriers to entry to be an entrepreneur. And I love what you said about Cynthia too, how she's an advocate entrepreneur. And to me, it's really all about giving tools to people so that they can do what they do best, whether that's be the talent or create, or uh, just give them the tools to make money doing what they're passionate about doing, what they love to do. So yeah, I'm thrilled to host the event. Hopefully listeners who are listening now will come and support not just signing this petition for Healthy Streets LA, but also to become a member of what we're doing at LACBC. And it's really important for us to really change our model from a membership model to a supporter-based model. So anyone who loves bikes or rode a bike when they were four years old, or who has a kid who rides a bike or a mom, or just wants safer streets in general, should be a member of our organization. Arms are wide open and welcoming. And when I look at the Streets for All campaign, what really resonates to me is that you look at their website and it says clean air, faster buses, streets for kids, safer streets. This is not just about bikes, our movement. This is about returning the streets and our space to like a safer, healthier way of living that's not car dominated. And LA is a big place. So it's important to have a car and that's an important piece of it for some people. But, you know, we're fighting for everyone. Can you tell us where your office is and where the bike salon will be next Thursday? Yeah, sure. So next Thursday, the 31st at 7 p.m., the bike salon will be taking place in Playa Vista at my new facility. The company's called Maverick Community. It's going to be at the runway, which is an outdoor mall where Whole Foods is. There's ample parking for bikes and for cars. And we would love to have you guys there. There's going to be refreshments. There'll be some food. 
And it'll be a lot of fun with like-minded people who are trying to make LA a better place. Do people need to sign up or they can just show up? Yes. Genevieve, can you chime in? Before that, I would say that I don't know what Metro bus is there, but I know the big blue bus three goes down Lincoln Boulevard, which is right near there. So there's also good public transit to the event. Genevieve, you want to chime in a little bit on how people can get involved and how they can sign up and more importantly, how they can give money? Yes. So going back to the registration question, we do have a registration form. We are looking forward to having as many bike-minded people as we can at our first bike salon. And when are the other two going to be? I think you all said you're going to try and do three in the next couple of weeks. Yes. So we have one coming up on April 21st and tentatively one on May 5th. And will those be at the same place or different places around town? Different places around town. April 21st one will be at Doubting Thomas. And we are still working on logistics for the May 5th Cinco de Mayo one. And our social media will also be promoting all three of the bike salons. So everyone can check that. And our new cycle e-newsletter. Great. Will it be on the LACBC website? Yes, we can put it on there as well. Yeah, good. And what is that website? Just so people listening can just share it. LA-bike.org. LA-bike.org. Okay, great. So hopefully we'll have a good crowd on Thursday. Will there be beer, Michael, or... Hell yeah. I'm just curious because I'm kind of a beer drinker. <laughs> I don't even drink beer, but yeah, there will be beer. Okay, good. There will be refreshments. Yeah. Yeah. So what else are we working on besides the bike salon Thursday? What topics can we share on Thursday with the other people there? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of things. First of all, Michael also has offered very generously to give a door prize. So we'll have a drawing and Michael's offered to give some math community training with one of the trainers that he describes that you can select from one of the trainers that he's housing at this amazing facility. So there'll be some door prizes as well at the event. But yeah, I mean, the mayoral campaign is getting started, right? So it's a chance for us to start to talk to the community about what their priorities are for safer, healthier, more equitable streets. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just talk to folks about like where they're at, what's going on in their lived experience riding and walking on LA streets, because we're also developing, and I mentioned this in our last segment, a mayoral questionnaire. And we're actually going to be developing a forum that's all around active transportation and bicycling specifically for the mayoral candidate to come and speak their platform to our constituency, which are obviously people who ride and who walk and who transit across Los Angeles. And so we'll be talking a little bit about that program. We'll be talking a little bit about our new Giving Gears program, which is a way for folks to not only participate in some of our programming at some of our community rides, but also to your point earlier to Genevieve to donate. We're at 501c3. We need your support. We need people to come out and really help resource our efforts. We've got big ideas for what's going to happen in LA in the next five to 10 years. You know, we have this amazing Mediterranean climate where we talk about most of us live in the flats where there's very little elevation gain that they have to deal with in terms of getting from point A to point B. So more of us should be riding bikes, but we don't because we don't feel safe. And the best thing that we can do to make that a more accessible, more reasonable thing for people to do riding bikes in LA where our partners and our wives and our husbands don't kind of look at us like, are you sure you're going to get on your bike today? Is if we have the infrastructure that's going to protect their lives. And so we're leaning into that. We're working doubly hard on trying to identify projects like Sunset for All that are going to change the streetscape and create a piece of the street so that everybody has peace on the streets, right? So that everyone has a safe lane that they can ride and know that they're going to be able to make it to their destination without fearing for their lives. Yeah. You know, there's a great quote. I don't know who said it, but it goes, when a government builds quality bicycle 
infrastructure on their streets, they value the life of the person who rides the $300 bicycle as much as they value the life of the person who owns the $30,000 car. So I think that's really an important way for our government to show that we care about all of our citizens. I think I'd add to that that safety is a personal thing. And we know from data that's been collected that there's this middle percentage of people that are interested but concerned about writing. And then at either fringe, there's people who are more scared and people who are more confident. And what we want to do is give everyone that choice so that when they get out there, they're safe. Some people will be safe on Figueroa and other on the same infrastructure, other people will not feel as safe. So it's important for us to in these bike salons to be able to have those conversations to people to understand what their fears are and help us realize what we can do, whether it's education in addition to the infrastructure that we're working on, which also I think all of us believe is key, but where those different pieces fit in what communities. And that's why salons like this are also important, not just because of this really super important initiative, but also because because of those conversations that we can have. Great. We're taping this on Thursday, March 24th, and a war is raging in Ukraine half a world away, partly over oil, and gas prices are up, and used car prices are up, and new car prices are up. So it really is an important time for us to embrace freedom of choice for all of our citizens to choose how they want to go about their daily lives, whether it be going to Trader Joe's or the doctor's office or work or just exercise. So I want to thank Michael for all of your work over the past few years. And Cynthia, I love going to Santa Monica and riding in the protected bike lanes. We Eli, love having you're, you're a hero of mine, as you know, because I've been involved with LACBC for a long time and you've come in and done a wonderful job. Um, There's one more thing. There's also a trip to Tahoe that people can win by coming to these bike salons. So in addition to the wonderful door prizes that Michael is offering for this particular bike salon, throughout the series, there's going to be a bigger prize or a prize to aim after that's more than just a local thing. And that's a trip to Tahoe. Great. A lot more details at the bike salon. So if that piques your interest, come to the bike salon at the Maverick Community, Thursday the 31st. But basically come to the salon and find out how you can do that. And again, it's really all about getting those signatures. You know, if we want our streets to change, we have to step up. We have to speak. We have to show up on behalf of our streets. They're not going to change themselves. You know, we have to make that extra effort. You were describing to me, Taylor, how your daughters learned how to swim at a community pool and how even when you go back all these many years later, there are people there who recognize you and them and that sense of community that those community pools create. Well, it's a similar thing for these streets. Our streets right now are the public right of way. They belong to all of us. They belong to every kind of modality, whether you're on foot, on, on a scooter, and especially for us on a bike. And so, so you got to show up and driving. Yes, yes. We're not car free. We're car light. We're just asking people to consider, do you have to get in your car, whether it's electric or whatever, or can you make that a ride instead? So that's part of what we're excited about sharing at the salon on the 31st. Thanks so much for having us, Taylor. Well, it's great to have everybody together because united we stand and divided we fall. <laughs> so on that note, thanks very much, you guys. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal. Get yourself a bike.